Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, and every week we come to you with the best in healthcare chat radio. We talk to you about the things that doctors talk about in locker rooms, in lounges all over the country, and try to educate you so that you'll be a better consumer, a better advocate for yourself and for your family regarding your health care. This show is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. Docs for Patient Care Foundation stands for preservation of the doctor-patient relationship and fights every day for your healthcare freedom, arming you with the information that you need so that you can advocate for yourself. The uh, foundation is dependent on your help, so please go to our website, wwwd 4 the number 4, pcfoundation.org, that's docs for patientcarefoundation.org, and take your time, go through the website, things that you need to know, things in the news, things that you don't even know are happening, are well uh, uh, documented, well explained on the website, so go through there, and uh, if, if you agree with the things that we're doing, if you want to support the efforts of the foundation and, and continue to listen to this radio show, whether you're listening live or listening on podcast, please f- give generously to the foundation so we can continue to uh, bring you this show and do the work that we're doing all over the country. Uh, I'm under the weather today, as so many people in the Atlanta area where I broadcast from are right now. The weather is crazy, and and uh, if you in Atlanta, they say if you don't like the weather, just stay around for an hour, and it'll change, and that does not do well for, for uh, how you feel. And so if I start coughing or sound scratchy, please forgive me today. And... Uh, uh, hopefully, I'll do less talking, and I'll have my my uh, in studio guests do most of the talking. And I'm very glad and happy to uh, have with me today an old friend, um, a colleague, uh, someone who is a, uh, a urologist as I am, um, a former healthcare activist working side by side with me through the years now an author, and that's why we brought her in today, so that she would be able to uh, discuss um, the latest um, uh, endeavor in her in her uh, very accomplished career. Um, we uh, 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 take great pleasure at, uh, at uh, welcoming you, uh, Dr. Martha Boone, into the Doctor's Lounge. Thank you for having me here this morning, Hal. You know, we've had people on our show before who were novelists or who were authors, but never a novelist. And we've never had anybody really in here who has written a book that we're going to focus on today. So, so you are breaking new ground for us. Great. So, first of all, before we get started, please tell 
I know you have told all of your patients about your appearance on this show today, which we are thrilled about. You know, the more listeners that we have, the better it is for us. And uh, we, we uh, are, uh, you know, very uh, proud of, of what we've been able to accomplish on our show. But uh, you've expanded our listenership, uh, you know, quite quite a great deal, if if even a fraction of the patients that you've sent out your, uh, your announcement to have, uh, uh, have decided to listen in. So, your patients know you, but the rest of the listening audience doesn't. So take a few minutes and tell us uh, about your background, your story, where you come from, how you got here today. So uh, my name is Martha Boone, and um, I grew up in South Carolina. I had the privilege of having a life where I did a lot of work on a farm. And so my people are basically salt-of-the-earth farm people from South Carolina. Growing up like that taught me a lot about hard work, and it taught me a lot about relationships. On the farm, everybody had to work, uh, whether you were a man or a woman, regardless of race, color, creed, or religion. We were all unified by trying to put food on the table. And so that prepared me for medicine, where we have to work pretty hard. (laughs) Um, I went to the College of Charleston later went to the Medical University of South Carolina. Then I moved down to New Orleans and went to Tulane. And that was where I really feel like my life blossomed. For reasons that I'll never fully understand, I really love New Orleans. And it's a rich place for storytelling. The food, the culture, the music, the art, the mixing of all the different types of people... It's a little bit of a crazy place, but it makes uh, great stories. Um, I came to Atlanta via um, the Medical College of Georgia. I was there for a little while, and then I came to Atlanta to join, actually, your group. And um, I was a little too independent for group practice, so I was out by myself for about 21 years, and then recently I've been bought by a hospital system, and I am currently an employee for a hospital system. So that's been kind of my transition through the field of medicine. You've left out a lot, and <laughs> we'll try. We'll try. We'll try to maybe touch on a, a little bit of that after we've uh, gotten a little bit into the main reason why you're here today, which is to discuss your very um, uh, wonderful novel called *The Big Free*. Before we do, what made you decide to sit down and write a book? It's not easy to do this. So I've been writing stories since I was about four years old. Um, A lot of good fiction writers will tell you that you have to be a really good liar to even start to do fiction (laughs) writing. And from childhood, anything that was happening, I would always want to elaborate to the point where I wasn't exactly sure what had happened because I had made the story so flamboyant. So it's kind of always been a part of my personality. And then as I went through medical training, I used it as a coping mechanism. Anything that would happen that would be exciting or horrifying or particularly funny or frightening, I would write stories about it. And one of my mentors at Tulane was a very famous trauma surgeon named Dr. Norman McSwain. And Dr. McSwain had been collecting my stories. I had been sending them to him for about 20 years. And he kept pushing me, you know, where's the next story, where's the next story, where's the next story? He had a stack of my stories sitting beside his two-lane green leather chair in his um, library on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. 
And he started about four years ago really pushing. You have to put it in a book. You have to put it in a book. And he was constantly badgering me, please put the stories in a book. And finally one day I said, I will, Dr. McSwain, if you will let me use your name as a fictionalized character. And he said, I think that would be fabulous. <laughs> so I started to sit down with the stories and put them together in a book. And actually I have enough material for about seven books. But it is a fictionalized version of my first six months at Charity Hospital in New Orleans. You know, um, in, in at the end of, of the book where you write the acknowledgments, you, you spend a little bit of time writing about Dr. McSwain. And um, I know that he passed away before the book came out. And uh, that must have been, you know, quite bittersweet for you. Yes, um, Dr. McSwain had read most of the last edit and had approved everything. Of course, you know, he was still my professor, even though I was almost 60 years old. <laughs> and he was correcting, you know, some of my medical information to make sure I had it right. But um, my husband and I had gone to New Orleans to visit him to kind of run through the final copy. And we were standing at the Windsor Court Hotel waiting for him, and he never showed up. And we were standing in the rain, and I was dialing his number at Tulane and calling his cell phone. And my husband, who's not a doctor, kept saying to me, well, you know, he's probably just stuck in the operating room somewhere. And I told him, I said, no, you don't understand this man. He always makes his commitments. How old was he at this time? He was 72 or 3 at that point. Mm -hmm. And so we went ahead and went over to Commander's for dinner, and we sat there waiting, you know, thinking he was going to call, and he never did. And three days later, when we were back in Atlanta, the phone rang, and it was Dr. McSwain. He was in the ICU. He had had an um, aneurysm, and his daughter would not let him use his phone. So as soon as his daughter gave him the phone, the first person he called was me to say, mm -hmm. hey, I'm sorry, I missed the dinner date. And um, that was one of our, our last conversations. Was he always Dr. McSwain to you? Oh, Yes. I mean, he was scary. This was, you know, your classic surgery professor. I mean, you better do everything right for this guy. And, you know, the outcome for the patient was really all that, that he cared about. And he was the perfect mentor for a young woman. I mean, they had had women go through surgery at Tulane, and they'd actually even had someone go through urology. But one of the important things about him was that he treated me like everyone else. And he saw my potential, but he did not cut me any breaks. And even as an older man, when we were able to joke and laugh about things that had happened at charity, he was still my professor. It's 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 funny because it's hard to make that transition. You know, we I, I've been training people my whole life, and you know, it's hard when they are ten years younger than you that you're still Doctor Schurz to them, and you, even though you try to tell them no. Please call me Hal, <laughs> and and it's it's hard for those those trainees to make that transition as an equal. They never really look at themselves quite as an equal, even though they really are. Well, very few of us would ever be his equal. Um, this is a man who was just bigger than life. I mean, I really didn't know a lot of things about him until his funeral. I mean, he had been very involved in the military and had done a lot of training to teach, you know, the guys in the field how to take care of themselves. He uh, was the physician for the New Orleans Police Department. I mean, this was a guy who was a, prof a full professor at Tulane and just wore many hats. I mean, people were telling stories about all kinds of things that he had done for them. And as I was writing the book, 
um, people started contacting me. I actually talked to a woman surgeon who had been working in Afghanistan, and she had been a former pa- a former student of Dr. McSwain's. And when she would have a difficult case in the field taking care of our soldiers, she would Skype him and ask him questions. And, you know, it would be the middle of the night in his home on Bourbon Street, New Orleans, and he would get up and, you know, talk to her about whatever needed to be done with the patient. So he was saving lives on people he never even saw um, with our military guys. Definitely a bigger-than-life figure, wasn't he? Oh, yes. You know, um, the, uh, the the question that, that, you know, it was really you've answered, and I pretty much knew the answer to, was, you know, whether or not the Big Free was autobiographical. And, uh, and I think that you've pretty much answered that question right now on the air that this really is a recollection of of your experiences at charity hospital in new orleans well it's a fictionalized version so um one of my favorite characters the head nurse um in the nurse, emergency nurse um Libby. Re- li- yes yeah lavinia robichaud <laughs> she is completely a fictionalized character but she's an amalgam of all the great nurses i've ever known And any nurse who's ever had to work in the emergency room or in the operating room with doctors when they've just gotten out of school and they think that they know everything can definitely relate to Nurse Robichaud's role in all of this. And so she was no one character, but she was a combination of about ten different great nurses that I've known. So beside um, Dr. McSwain, and we've got... A minute till the break. This is good because we can break without without losing train of thought. The question that I want to have you answer when we get back from break is, are there any other characters in the book who are pretty much real characters or are they all made up? And, and uh, because you have a whole array of very interesting people, um, uh, starting with the dapper uh, neurosurgery um, resident to the uh, the cardiothoracic uh, 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 fellow. So the the story is is delightful, and uh, it's called "The Big Free" by Dr. Martha Boone, and we'll be back to talk a little bit more about it in the next break. So stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. Today we are having a, uh, a nice chat with uh, new author, Dr. Martha Boone, who is a urologist in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, uh, an old friend of mine, former colleague of mine, and... Um, and uh, she's written a book uh, that is largely based on on fact that is uh, uh, really a uh, a conglomeration of her experiences training at Charity Hospital in uh, New Orleans. And we were discussing some of the characters in her book, one of the, which is Dr. Norman McSwain, who's a real character. And the question that we asked was whether or not there were any other characters in the book that names were changed. I think Dr. McSwain was the only one whose name is is actually a real character, but were there other characters in there who were real characters? Yes, yeah, so Dr. McSwain agreed to have his real name used and actually embraced the whole idea and was very excited about it. Um, the young protagonist Elizabeth is based loosely on me. I, I was I was just seeing you throughout the book when I was reading it, and every you know every story about about uh, Elizabeth um, Roberts was Martha Boone. <laughs> so Elizabeth had moved from South Carolina. She was a very naive farm girl. She shows up in the emergency room the first day. She has pearls in her ears. She's wearing her grandmother's pearls around her neck. She's got on pink argyle socks, a little khaki skirt, straight out of the College of Charleston. Was that you? That was me. And here she is in the most difficult trauma center at that time in the United States, probably. It was like working in a mass unit. Um, on Elizabeth's 30th birthday, she got 17 gunshot wounds to the chest and abdomen while working in the emergency room. So it was a big shock. Prior to coming to charity, the only gunshot wound she had ever seen was some uh, bubba from South Carolina who'd fallen off of a deer blind and shot himself in the foot. (laughs) So it was a big thing to show up there and all of a sudden you've got automatic weapons and 9mm parabellum, you know, uh, armory uh, bullets and stuff in patients, and so it was a whole different deal. And self-inflicted wounds and and a new disease at the time in the early 1980s that nobody knew about. Right. Um, I don't think the CDC had yet figured out what HIV was, and so that was part of the, the story, too. But you'd ask about the different characters, so the protagonist is definitely loosely arranged around my experience in the first six months. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. McSwain is pretty much himself. I wanted the people who read the book to really realize the importance of the doctor-patient relationship. And so I definitely had to clean up some of the things that occurred at charity. People who were there at the time uh, thought it was a pretty good uh, analogy of what was going on. Everybody said I got Dr. McSwain correct. 
In fact, Dr. Ken Maddox, who is another world-famous trauma surgeon and knew Dr. McSwain very well, he felt that I had his character uh, spot on, as he put it. The uh, nun in the clinic, she was definitely based on the nuns that ran Charity Hospital. Was there a person who was under five feet who ran the clinic? Exactly. Um, Sister Marion was based on a real person. She was a five-foot-tall pistol who ran the clinic. Uh, She ran the Angola Prison Clinic, which was one of the toughest clinics in Louisiana. Uh, The gentleman who was the tech at the VA, Uh he was also based on a on a real character. I think one of the things that will that people will see in the book is that really any doctor could have written this book, particularly Mm -hmm. any surgeon. Mm -hmm. We all know these characters. Absolutely, we all know the types of patients. These situations are things that we're all familiar with. I mean, it's really something any of us could have written. You're 100 percent right about that. I, you know, when as I was reading it, I it. It opened up memories that I have about my experiences, which are not that different. I mean, anybody who trained at a at a teaching hospital, who trained at a VA hospital, we you know you could pretty much transpose that ex- those experiences anywhere. Charity may be one of the more intense, but but the experiences are are shared and 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 very very similar. The the, um, the question that I really wanted to ask was, Has have the people who you described in the book, beside Dr. McSwain, had an opportunity to read your book? Well, the book is being published on January 9th. So it's not yet out. Yeah. What happens in, pub- in the publishing industry these days is the publisher sends the book to Amazon, and Amazon sometimes puts it out before it's actually been published. Okay. And so it's been on pre-order since July, and it's been available to be purchased on the Kindle and the Nook and the various e-readers. I think there's something like 1,200 e-readers that it's been available on. So I've actually gotten feedback from people in Europe, you know, Germany, Switzerland. So people have been reading it on e-reader, okay. but the actual launch date is January 9th. So people can get it right now on on their Kindles or Nooks and, and order it through Amazon that way. Right. And um, all of that information is on my website. It's www.marthaboone.com is our book website, and it will direct you to your favorite independent bookstore um, or how to do it on Amazon or how to do it on Barnes & Noble's website. Well, there you have it. This is uh, – you can – you can pretty much uh, uh, what you want. Oh, I, 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 my producer um, David Moxley wants me to show the book on on the uh, on our webcam. So this is it. It's called the Big Free, and uh, you, my our listeners, are among the first to hear about how you can get this book, which I highly recommend. Um, it's a, It'll make a very nice holiday read if you uh, get it for yourself or your loved ones um, as a Christmas present. And they can uh, read, read uh, a little bit and get a little bit of insight into what their older doctors not no 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 disrespect <laughs> meant because I'm in the same boat have experienced and I'm going to get into that in just a, a, a little bit but um, so I highly recommend that you do that so 
the big free we've said is Charity Hospital in New Orleans, but uh, and we've said that these are the same experiences that people who trained in other hospitals have have experienced. You know, any any doctor could have written it. And and that was actually my next question. You know, what made you know? There's there are other places that were intense. Bellevue Hospital in New York, Cook County in Chicago, Grady in Atlanta, Parkland in Dallas, Herman in Houston. I could name another dozen. What, in your opinion, made Charity Hospital stand out as the toughest place? Because you've already said that there was no place quite like it. I think it was just simply the statistics of what was going on in the country at that time. All these hospitals that you've named have, have shifted around as far as to which one has the most trauma at any particular point in time. But I think in um, New Orleans at that time, crack had just come to the city, and basically we were in the middle of a drug war. And, you know, like right now it may be Chicago, which has the largest number of uh, stabbings and shootings related to drugs. At that particular point in time, it happened to be New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And it was just a city in crisis. And, I mean, there there was basically wars going on over the drugs. And, you know, we were the doctors where they brought the patients at that time. So Hurricane Katrina changed everything in New Orleans, including Charity Hospital. And um, uh, the old charity hospital closed its doors back in, what year was that? In 2005. 2005. Yeah. yeah. And it sits there just like a lot of the, um, um, the, the um, giant uh, granite headstones in some of those uh, New Orleans cemeteries as a, as a, a monument or as a uh, remembrance of what things were. And um, the, the question that I, you know, uh, would like you to, uh, I know the answer to this, but I'd like you to be able to talk about it to, to the audience. Can there ever be an experience like charity again? And, and uh, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Because, the, you know, you talk to people who are training today and charity hospital is not the charity hospital that you describe. Yes. I think the generation of surgeons that came before us actually had the most amazing experience in training and surgery because they did everything. I mean, if you were a general surgeon, you did brain surgery, you did orthopedics, you delivered babies. By the time our generation came along, things were, were splitting up into subspecialties and specialties in surgery. And so we had more technology and more information to assimilate, but we didn't have the fun of being the doctor who took care of absolutely everything. I think the the young people that are coming along today, it's split up even more. It's even more technology-based. And they've actually made a lot of changes to make it a more humanitarian experience. I mean, for me, it was a calling. I knew that I would be giving up my youth, and I gave it up freely for what I thought was a calling. A lot of the younger people I talk to today, they want a normal work schedule, 
they have ideas about work-life balance, which never occurred to me. I mean, I was in the emergency room waiting for the next, you know, person to come in because that was the most important thing to me. I wasn't thinking about what was going on at home or was I going to get any exercise or what was I going to eat. I mean, I frequently either didn't eat or ate out of the vending machine. So it probably wasn't the most healthy lifestyle for a young person. But it was exciting, and I, you know, wish I had been a general surgeon in the 50s so that I could have even done even more. <laughs> well, you know, so so the answer to the question is no, there can't be another charity hospital because because things have changed and nobody really uh, um, wants to go back to the way things were for a lot of reasons. But the way things were created a... A, um, a product, a doctor, a surgeon, who was qualified to pretty much handle anything that came their way. The character, the main character in my book, Elizabeth Roberts, she wanted to be the best surgeon she could be, and that was her total driving force. All of her family, even though most of them were uneducated, the big driving force in their life was to do their duty. Her uncles had been in the military, and everybody was very focused on taking care of their family and doing their duty. And when she arrived at Charity Hospital, her number one goal was to do her duty. And I think today a lot of the younger people are more interested in balance. You know, they have other goals. And, you know, time will tell which makes for the best doctoring. (laughs) <laughs> I, I we all have our opinions about that. <laughs> so, did Elizabeth Roberts go to uh, Charity Hospital wanting to become a urologist? In the book, no. <laughs> um, in the book, she was there to be a general surgeon to start out with. And, w- and what about Martha? As I kn- know her, Martha Roche and now Martha Boone. Yes. So she was accepted into the urology program with the uh, um, requirement to do two years of general surgery prior to doing urology. As, as most urologists in our generation were. Yes, yes. And I think that it was very important for both the character in the book and, you know, the author of the book to have that time because being a woman in a field that at that time was 98% male oh, and is gosh, now yeah. 94% male, um, as the chairman of urology told me then, Dr. Blackwell Evans, girl, you better know what you're doing. <laughs> he, he was also a bigger-than-life person, Dr. Yes, Blackwell Evans. Yes, he was. So, so did you, um, you know, clearly this is a fictionalized version of your life, but your experiences as a rotator in surgery is different than that of the surgeons going through the program at least that's my that was my experience and an experience that I know others have had they treated the people who weren't actually in the surgery pathway a little differently than the than those who were were committed to go down surgery path did you find that that was the case for you I think that was the case for most people. We are, oh, we are at a br- hard break right now, and I, I didn't uh, see that. So we'll, we'll get back to that question when we get back to the break. Stay with us.
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. My special guest today is Dr. Martha Boone, the author of a uh, brand new book, The Big Free. <laughs> Buy it. It's online, available on on uh, on Kindles and uh, on. Uh, on Nooks and on any e-reader, it will be available in bookstores after January 9th. So it's a great, it'll make for a great Christmas read. Um, Martha, um, did you have any trouble writing this book, or just I mean everything just flew off off the page when when you were writing this? Writing is easy for me. I wrote the entire book in about six to eight weeks. Wow. What I don't like is the editing process. Mm -hmm. And that's why I have stacks and stacks of stories in my um, office that have never been edited. And that's what I would send to Dr. McSwain, the unedited versions. So I don't like the editing, but the writing is just its pretty easy for me. So what are you going to do without Dr. McSwain here, sadly? Well, I'll have to move on to other characters, which was the plan all along. Okay. <laughs> so there are more books in, in the works in your brain? Yes, I've already started the second one. I'm about a fourth of the way through the process. Can you just tell us what it's about? Well, it's kind of about the next six months of all of this. Oh, and very good. Yeah. It's, do you have a title yet, or are you still working on I that? I do, but it's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's your... I don't want, it's not copyrighted yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Martha, why was it important for you to tell this story? I feel that in our current climate, the medical profession has been a bit maligned by the media. They're very quick to talk about anything we do wrong, but they're very slow to talk about what we do right. And the relationship between a doctor and a patient is a very intimate one. It's one of trust, and it's one of honor. And we've been belittled. Uh, by some agencies and I wanted to remind people a that being a surgeon and being a doctor is not something everyone can do 
Um, several people that read my book who had previously not thought much of doctors were wowed and said, I can't believe what you guys have gone through. Friends of mine who were lawyers who always thought that their education and my education was similar were dumbfounded at the things that, that all of us have experienced. They also didn't realize, you know, how hard surgery is. Um, I wanted to remind people that being a doctor is really a sacred honor. I mean, when a person undergoes anesthesia and lays on a bed and allows you to rearrange their organs, there is no more intimate or trusting relationship. And it's not anything that can be managed by the government or the insurance agencies. And people who haven't been there, either on the side of the patient or on the side of the doctor, cannot fully understand the relationship. And so I wanted to give a peek into that. I wanted to show people the humor. I mean, absolutely hysterical things happen in medicine. What could be funnier than that teaching of the male urologic exam at the VA? And I highly recommend the book just so you can read about that because it's absolutely true. Another reason I wrote the book was I wanted to show that there were women who were brought early into a very male-dominated field who were treated well. I had great male mentors. I could never have done it without them. There were times when men said insensitive things because we were trying to incorporate women into a field that had been predominantly male. But my overall experience was that the men at Tulane Surgery and Tulane Urology were champions for me. And, you know, that's particularly important and and very apropos for what's happening today in, in, in our so current culture. We just open up the paper or turn on the TV and see all of this nonsense that's going on. Yes, and I have to say, you know, my, my good family upbringing from, um, from basic farm people really prepared me for whatever was going to happen. I mean, I would have never in a million years gone to someone's hotel room to discuss business. And if any man had touched me in his office, I would have clobbered him with his lamp. So, you know, the farm girl really didn't have that much trouble with those kinds of things. I mean, I feel a great deal of sympathy for people who are in a situation where they are taken advantage of. But I have to say, in my training, I had many male champions, and I would like for people to know that that is the case for a lot of women also. That's very important for women to tell the positive part about that, about the fact that um, you know the, it's so easy to um, to remember the the things that that offended you. Everybody wants to be offended these days. People have thin skin. I think that's what sets doctors apart from pretty much anybody because you can't be a doctor unless you have thick skin. And and that includes hazing, which is not necessarily harassment. And that's just the way that everybody gets treated, not because you're a woman, but because you're the low person on the totem pole. Exactly. I mean, I watched my fellow male colleagues. I mean, everyone my year was a male but me. And, you know, on Wednesday night, we had our conference called Stump the Chump, where both <laughs> LSU and Tulane and the auctioner system would get up and, you know, we'd try to make fools out of one another. And it was basically to make us better doctors and to teach us how to think. And I saw them get treated terribly. And, you know, if anything, I may have occasionally been given a bit of a pass because these were southern males and nobody really wanted to take the girl apart in front of everybody else. So I um, feel like I was treated fairly. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and that doesn't, again, that too doesn't exist today because people are afraid that if they say the wrong thing or they come across as insensitive that they are um, crossing the line, their, their boundaries that have nothing to do with sexuality, but it's, it's you know, just again, the, the, the need to um, make yourself protected against against accusations that that really I think um, are creating these this situation which is detrimental to teaching because teaching doctors requires you not always to be you know um, coddling you have to you have to give them a, a little bit of an edge I mean, particularly in surgery. I mean, at the end of the day, somebody has to make a decision. Somebody has to make a big move, and something has to be done. And you can't be meek and and mild-mannered to be able to make those decisions. So I feel like the training should be tough. For you to have the privilege to cut on other people when they're under anesthesia, you should have to run a gauntlet to be able to get there to do it. And if you're not willing to do that, then maybe that's not the right job for you. And I know that's kind of old-school thinking, but it really worked for me. I mean, one of the things I saw at Tulane and at Charity was everything was about the outcome for the patient. Nobody cared about anybody's feelings or sensitivities. All we cared about was getting a good outcome for the patient. Well, you know, you've always been about that, Martha, for as long as I've known you. And those of you who don't know what Dr. Boone is all about. You know, she's put herself out there. She's, t- you know, during the health and I know this is not something that you necessarily want to get into because you've left politics, you've left the, just the, the, all of the sniping about, about this, but it really comes right back to this because everything that you've done to try to defend medicine, to try to, to fight for medicine really was fighting for your patients. It was exactly. fighting for preservation of a system that, um, that worked, that had, um, that had the patient dignity, that doctors were the ones who were helping to um, to guard our patients from harm, from whether that came from a ins- an insurance company or the government or a hospital system or whomever, and and you've always been about you know just trying to um, bring humanity and common sense back and and try to to wake people up to to what was going on. Well, thank you for that compliment. I mean, one of the things I noticed in my office that caused me to pull back from involvement in the political situation, I was heavily involved for over three years. I mean, on a daily basis, I was trying to do things to work for my patients. I have never seen people come in my office so riled up, but yet so ignorant over an issue. And I really lost a lot of patients and a lot of referral doctors because they had an impression of what I was trying to do that was different from what I was trying to do. And so in writing my book, The Big Free, what I was trying to do is is do my part 
to remind people that the doctor-patient relationship is sacred and it cannot be governed by the government. It cannot be governed by a hospital or a pharmaceutical company or a pharmacy or, you know, big insurance companies. I mean, it is a relationship that is between the doctor and the patient. And I'm hoping that through this book people will be reminded of what type of relationship that is and be reminded that it can't be dictated from the outside. You know, I think one of the things that you won't talk about but I'm going to bring up is the fact that you have always been there for your patients. I I have, you know, been very impressed by the fact that that's always been important to you and the system the way that things have gone, it has really failed you and your ability to do what was right for your patients, to 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 um, to really uh, uh, do do the best job. It's it's and and you can tell your story about how you've had to downsize your practice, how you've had to do things just to continue to do things the way that you've wanted to do them. We've got one minute, and then we'll break, and you can finish the story. You can do the talk. Okay. So um, I appreciate your observation of that. I mean, my, my practice, I've been in solo practice since 1996. You're a dinosaur. <laughs> I am a dinosaur. And I take call every night and every weekend for my patients, except for about 25 days a year when I'm on vacation. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for anyone. And I want to. This is a great time to break. So we're going to talk about that, and and then we're going to finish up the the about the book when we get to the last segment in the doctor's lounge. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, with my special guest, Dr. Martha Boone, discussing her new book, The Big Free. And we were talking about Martha's experiences, not so much with the book, but yes, with the book, because it was an opportunity for her to um, tell a story, because... um, Things have have gone uh, not the way that everybody wants them to go in medicine. Not for me, not for her, not for a lot of doctors. In fact, um, we're going to talk about this um, in a moment. But you know, we've had a show about doctor burnout in uh, and how doctors are leaving the profession. How doctors are are feeling like um, uh, things are not 
um, th- th- that the system is not uh, allowing them to do the job that they want to do, or or they're they're um, just overly stressed by all of the regulation, all of the all the things that they have to put up with that have nothing to do with patient care. And I think that that's Martha's story in, in a nutshell, in in many ways. Yes. So just to kind of review what my choices were and where the changing environment of healthcare led me, when I first finished my fellowship, I did I had done two years of general surgery, four years of urology, and a year of a reconstructive fellowship. And when I came out, I went into academic medicine because I wanted to do everything. I wanted to teach, I wanted to do research, and I wanted to do the big surgeries. And so I did that for about seven years and learned that I really liked taking care of my own patients. So I left academics and all the layers of the residents, interns, students, and went into private practice. And I chose a big group in Atlanta um, with some very smart, very high-quality urologists, but found that for my personality, being in a large group and sharing call was very hard on me. So I decided to go into solo practice, knowing nothing about business. The first year, I nearly went under because I didn't know anything about how to code or bill because I had come from the academic world. But I did like taking direct care of my patients around the clock, as crazy as that sounds. And then after 20 years of doing that, the government started trying to take over health care. And every year, I took home less money in my paycheck and spent more and more money on health insurance and on taxes for my employees. And finally, about three years ago, I was reaching the tipping point where I could not continue to do it anymore. My, I had downsized absolutely everything that I could, even though I was one of the top 1% educated people in the country, and I was working very, very hard. Every year it got harder and harder. And I started to become resentful that all of these other entities were making decisions about my patients. I would write a prescription, and they would go to the pharmacy, and the prescription would be changed. I would order a test, and the insurance company would say, no, you can't have that. I would know of a therapy that would work great for a patient, and the government would say, no, we don't cover that. And there was increasing layers and layers of bureaucracy, so there was no one to even call to argue. The first time a pharmacist changed my patient's prescription, I got in my car and drove to that pharmacy and made a fool out of myself. And I did that about a dozen times, and then I finally realized, you know, I can't spend my life like this. So I was reaching a tipping point of do I fight or do I run? And so I fought for about three and a half years, but I lost patients and referral doctors over that because people did not understand that my actions were not political. They were trying to preserve what I had worked so hard to, to, to build. And then when I was near the point of quitting, you know, I was having trouble sleeping. I was having some tearful times in the office. I started really working on this book and really reliving why I had done what I did and how important the doctor-patient relationship is and how much it means to me and tried in the form of a novel to inform the public about that relationship and also to have my older colleagues take a fun little romp through our glory days in surgical training back in the dark ages. And so now I've sold my practice to a large entity, and the tipping point was the cost of health care for my employees. My employees' insurance had always been paid totally by me. It was about $350 a month, 
And four years ago, it started going up every year. And the last year that we did not have insurance, can you imagine having a medical practice and none of the people in your office are insured? That's how bad it got. But it was $850 a person for single coverage, not family coverage. And that was it. I was going to lose my employees. Per month. Per month. I was going to lose my employees or find a different way. And, you know, I am happily employed by a large entity. But, you know, I don't have the control I used to have, but I still get to be their urologist, and so I'm happy and grateful for that. You said that this book was a catharsis. Yes. Yes. And, you know, and I think that you are um, an example of of what we hear often and over and over again about how doctors are burning out and... um, and, and if people do not recognize this and if we don't do something to change this, this is going to um, severely impact the, um, the quality of the people taking care of us in the future because the very best, the very brightest people, the people who should be working well into their golden years and sharing their experiences are no longer sticking around and you've got more inexperienced people who don't who aren't as well trained as a charity experience who have been coddled who really have never seen things before those are the ones taking care of us yeah it's really something not to end on a dark note let's just <laughs> let's just bring this you know upbeat again did you really fall asleep in in on your on your uh, in your food at Commander's Palace. Yes, I did. I had the fun um, time of taking Miss Ella of Commander's Palace fame a copy of my book and dropping it off about a month ago. So the experience there, um, you know, trying to have a date that was that was one thing. I mean, when you are a tired intern and you have a sense that you're supposed to go out and do things that young women are doing, like dating. But yet you're so tired that, that you're trying to choose between food and the bed. So the commander's palace story was completely correct. Oh, that's that's just too rich. <laughs> <laughs> with with crab in your hair and crab uh, remoulade. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just too much. So when Hollywood comes calling, you know, let me let me just before I say that, you know, when I read this book. It, you know, it was kind of like the, I think that people will like it because people have an appetite for this kind of, uh, insider look into medicine. You know, we have, we've had ER and now we have Gray's Anatomy and Chicago Medical. And it reminds me very much of a very popular book when we were young, young people called, um, the House of God, which was the story of medical training at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. And uh, this is the counterpart. This is a female surgical uh, version of that kind of story. So so uh, getting back to what I just started to say, when, ho- when Hollywood comes a-calling, because they certainly did for the House of God, who is going to play Elizabeth Roberts? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> Someone really hot. <laughs> I could see Jennifer Lawrence playing playing Elizabeth Roberts. That sounds great. I would like for Nurse Lavinia Robichaud to be uh, Queen Latifah. <laughs> 
and um, I would definitely like this to be done by uh, Mr. Tyler Perry since he's from New Orleans. <laughs> well, you know, he's here in Atlanta. So if anybody knows how I can get the book to Tyler Perry, please hook up a girlfriend. <laughs> well, we might be able to get a book to Tyler Perry, and, and he's here in Atlanta, and he can sit down with you, and uh, maybe you can go to maybe not Commander's Palace, but another equally nice <laughs> restaurant and uh, and not fall asleep and tell him about your story. I would love that. That would be my goal. So is, is there – you said that there's um, – uh, other books in the works, you know. You told you told the VA story, which I uh, about physical examination, which I have had the identical experience, but not from a female perspective. But I've taken medical students through the VA exam. That was always a junior urology resident task at the VA. You had to teach the medical students physical examination, and the veterans were more than happy to uh, participate. So I, I could see a book, you know, you made you made the VA look like a great place, which I guess in comparison to charity it was, but the VA has has more warts, you know, on it than, than a, you know, like a, a Halloween witch. So, so uh, is there, is there a, a possibility of writing a VA book? I don't know. Um, one of the things about Tulane is we had three VAs that we used. We used the Alexandria VA, the New Orleans VA, and the Biloxi VA. So I had vast amount of VA experience. I hadn't really thought about that, but that's actually a, a very good idea. Maybe I need to copyright that before uh, you get a chance to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can collaborate. <laughs> I would love to sit down with urologists and just write down everybody's stories, but I think they would all be the same. Well, you know, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. My my, you know, I had a similar story about prostate exam and uh, I think you mentioned in your book you know that with the nurse who is the uh, swishy nurse who ran the VA clinic that they wanted to make sure that uh, that uh, both hands were were, were in, in, in uh, you clear know view. clear view when they're doing that exam and that was well, I had the, I had that exact same experience with one of the veterans where I we uh, and, and these are stories that are just are, are, are you know people would be appalled but it, but it's it's sort of like war stories and and we I had a veteran who who was very uh, an old patient of mine who had a very unusual prostate he had um, chronic uh, um, granulomatous prostatitis, so it felt like prostate cancer, and and I, I had both my hands on his shoulders, and he thought I was doing the exam, and it was a student, <laughs> and, he, and he, whoa, <laughs> doctor. <laughs> I think one of the books I should write is crazy things that people have said to me during examinations because people get nervous and they just say all kinds of things. I yeah. mean, you could not make it up. Well, write that book and we will have you back here in the doctor's lounge. Martha, it was a a, a, a real honor, pleasure, and privilege to have you here today. And I hope that some at some point you'll come back into the doctor's lounge. Thank you so much. You're a great doctor and I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here with us in the Doctor's Lounge. And uh, we're coming up to the holiday season, so there may be some replays of shows. But uh, we'll have some good shows, and we have some good things in store for you for 2018. So please stay loyal, stay with us, tell your friends about us, and have very happy holiday season.
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.